Hi everyone, welcome to Luxury Voices, the podcast about the luxury world in Asia with a focus on the greater China market. I am Joanne Tang, your host, founder and CEO of Infinite Luxury Group. In this podcast, we converse about all layers and segments of luxury, from lifestyle, travel, to hospitality trends. I will interview key players of the luxury industry from all corners of the globe. We will talk about their initiatives and experiences in conquering the Asian luxury consumer. Discover how leading luxury executives handle this growing market where luxury spending is the highest in the world and gain a wealth of knowledge to harness this ever-promising luxury market. Nikki Witzgerald, owner of Angama, is regarded as somewhat of a maverick in the industry. Renowned for creating some of the world's finest safari lodges, Nikki and her late husband Steve saved the best for last. After delighting travelers for over 30 years, building and operating over 60 luxury lodges across Africa and India for and beyond, the beauty of Angama Mara's location drew them out of their retirement. Angama, meaning suspended in mid-air in Swahili, is a remarkable owner-run safari lodge located high above the floor of Africa's Great Rift Valley, overlooking Kenya's Masai Mara. It is considered by many as the loveliest game reserve on the continent. Nikki, it's a great pleasure having you on Luxury Voices. How have you been? Good morning, Joan, and hello from from Africa. I've been well, thank you. I mean, as well as any of us in the travel industry can be, but um, yeah, all good. Thank you. Before we start the core of our conversation, what does the word luxury mean to you? Well, Joan, I think you might be surprised, maybe not, because we're getting to know each other a little. The word luxury is actually banned from our vocab at Angama because luxury means so many different things to everybody. I mean, my luxury could be a beautiful sunset. Yours could be having a, a beautiful foam bath with a view. So that luxury for me would be the view, not the bath or the guest amenities. So again, it really is to, to work out for our guests, what is their luxury? Our guests are, are, are well-traveled. They are all high net worth. And certainly I would hazard a guess that their homes are way more beautiful than my safari lodge. So I think luxury is, is quite, can often be quite intangible or it can come from nature from where we are. I think we're going to be talking about natural luxury later on in our chat. But luxury really for me is, is the luxury of service. And sweet service. You know, I think we get into a stage in, in, in where we, you know, we've traveled, we've been to Dubai, we've been to Shanghai, Hong Kong, London, Paris, and it's all really beautiful hotels. And, but where we are, the luxury really is the luxury of the wilderness and the sheer beauty of it. So I would like our guests to feel the luxury of, of sweet service. I know that sounds strange, but you're a hotelier. So perhaps you, you understand that. Of course, I fully understand that. Thank you for sharing, Nikki. You have spent the past 40 years developing numerous hotels, restaurants, and over 60 luxury safari lodges across both sub-Saharan Africa and India. 
together with your husband Steve. From co-founding Halcyon Hotels in South Africa, Cape, in 1981 to many years with Enbion, before it was even called Enbion. Can you share your journey with us and what led you to come out of retirement to create Angama? Joan, that makes me feel so old when you say 40 years. <laughs> it is 40 years. So firstly, I'm, I have to, to share something with, with your, your listeners. Neither my husband nor I have one single day's hospitality hotel training between us. So we're actually total frauds. And I think I always like to kind of offload that so people know where I'm coming from. We started 40 years ago at the southern tip of Africa. My husband was a chartered accountant and I did a, an arts major in French and history. As you can see, we're well prepared for, for hotel keeping. And my husband finished his articles as an accountant and announced that after eight years of studying and, and doing articles, he no longer wanted to be an accountant. So well, that was the first step. So he said, let's go and, and we'll find this little hotel we know. Let's put together a, a group of investors and, and <laughs> let's rebuild it and run a hotel. We were in our mid-20s. And, you know, when you're, you're that age, you'd actually, there's no fear. You just jump straight yeah, in yeah. and say, well, we could do that. Why not? You know, I kind of had a bit of an interest in food. I love storytelling. And Steve was the CA. So we started this little hotel at the right on the southern tip of Africa near Cape Agalis. And we opened in, 19, we started in 1981 building. We opened the, the hotel in 1982. And we had no clue about travel trade, travel agents, how to market. All we knew is that we had this pretty little hotel two hours from Cape Town and what fun it would be. So that's, it, it was all a huge mistake, really. And then we found we're quite good at this. So we started uh, looking at a few opportunities and as it built the, the Bay Hotel in Camps Bay in Cape Town, which is quite a well-known hotel, international hotel. And then at 39, my husband had a heart attack in the midlife crisis all in one afternoon. Uh-huh. Actually true. And, yeah, he was about three days shy of his 40th birthday and said, I don't want – we've now been doing this for 14 years in Cape Town. And he said, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to now – join a safari company and this is what we're going to do so i said okay so we packed up our life in cape town and moved to johannesburg where we were both from originally and joined a company that was then known as conservation corporation this was in 1994 and you know conservation corporation was a good name then because it was the first company safari company to recognize that the way to conserve these beautiful parts of africa was through business It wasn't through handouts, NGOs, donors, whatever. It was actually run good businesses in these beautiful places and they will sustain. A lousy name, Conservation Corporation. Can you imagine if your fiancé, husband-to-be, had said, we're going to Conservation Corporation for for our honeymoon? You would say, are you crazy? It sounds like a, I don't know. Big business. (laughs) Exactly. It does not sound like a romantic place for a honeymoon. So we realized quite quickly that we had to sort of, re-image, uh, rebrand that, that name. But when we started in 1994, there were three properties in then Conservation Corporation. And we, when we left 15 years later, I think we had opened and run and managed up to about 55. It was about 55. Wow. Camps and lodges. So it was a, it was an exciting journey. We went from Conservation Corporation to Conscorp. Well, that sounded like a construction company. 
to then we thought, okay, then we thought let's just we'll rebrand it to CC Africa so we don't lose that essence of of giving back and and running a good business to 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 give back, but we're Africa and that that's special so we were CC Africa and th- that was shortened to CCA which is also not so good, and then roll forwards 10, 15 years. 10 years, about 10 years, we built lodges in partnership with the Taj Group in India. We built four lodges in the state of Madhya Pradesh. And now those staff were working for a company called CC Africa, but in India. So it started getting it started getting messy. We were also looking at some opportunities in Costa Rica and Peru, and that led to the name change about a year before we retired to and beyond, which is a good name. I mean, it was an emotional journey. You know, your guests hate any change. If you're called CC Africa, that's what you are. And people get very possessive about those names. Anyway, so that was a rebranding exercise I went through to to rebrand it to and beyond, which, as you well know, to this day. And when was it? In, in 2009, we retired. We had, as I said, 55 properties on two continents over goodness knows how many wildlife areas, two and a half thousand staff. And I said to Steve, okay, I'm done. Okay, I've done my best now. I'm done and done. Let's retire. So he said, great, good idea. Well, three minutes after we retired, he was bored. And um, <laughs> we did a little a little sortie into Latin America, looking to maybe replicate the Ambion model across Latin America because the natural beauty as you well know, of that of that part of the world is quite extraordinary, both in the natural beauty and the wildlife, birds, beautiful. Anyway, that didn't work out because of global meltdown, financial this and whatever. So we came back to Johannesburg and the phone rang in, 2000, in 2013. And unusually for him, Steve took the, saw who was on the phone and stepped outside and took the call. And I said when he came back, and who was that? He said, oh, I'm just going to pop up to Nairobi tomorrow. I said, why are you going to Nairobi? He said, because the property that we had known about for 15 years, a a property up on the edge of the Rift Valley, had become available. And the Maasai landowners asked Steve if he would like to build a lodge there. So sheer lunacy Uh at our age to be going back and starting all over again, it it was lunacy. You know, and, and, and it's a big pro- it's a big project by by lodge standards. It's a very big project, and it needed to be because it's a very beautiful site. And you know, anybody who's modelling these kind of businesses, you know, you look at the numbers. You you do really need, Joan. You need thirty to thirty six keys to make it work. And lodges generally are ten, twelve, fifteen intimate. You know, mm-hmm. small to get those those high rates. But we realised that firstly we had to pay the rent, which is a substantial rent, quite rightly, for that beautiful piece of land. And so we built, started building. We broke ground on the, what was it, the 14th of August 2014. And we welcomed, yes, our, and we welcomed our first guests 10 and a half months later. <laughs> wow. It was absolute chaos. We had 500 builders on the property in the middle of nowhere, we had an El Nino weather system that came through. It seemed to rain forever. But I have, you know, I've been looking after the, the global travel trade and global travel media for the best part of 25 years. And my reputation was on the line. I said we would be open on the 23rd of June. And we had to be. We started late because of financing and all those kind of good things that happened. But we opened. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we've just celebrated our sixth birthday. 
Yeah, so that's how we – the whole thing from the first hotel to this one has been one enormous mistake, a beautiful mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, been a, it's been a career of, of much love and much passion and many adventures, um, and I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't change it for the world. Wow, what a wonderful journey. Lots of ups and downs and lots of excitement and great accomplishments as well, Nikki. Thank wow. You. Thank you. Over a few decades and so many lodges created, you accumulated a wealth of knowledge. Is Ngama the jewel in the crown, Nikki? She was going to be, and I'm saying was going to be, my swan song. Okay, so that that's my next lunacy, is I said to, to Steve, over my dead body, no more. And the most and, and certainly the most dearly loved, because we had made so many mistakes and learned so much over our career, we could we could do Angama as best as we could. There are a couple of other ones that are that are very dear to me. There's a, a lodge in Tanzania called the Ngorongoro Crater Lodge, which is owned by Anbiyan. Mm. Same architect, yes. yeah, same architect as Angama. That uh, little monster I built 25 years ago. I was a director for for Tanzania in those days for and beyond. And again, the rain. As it seems every time I start to build a lodge, the rain comes down. Anyway, that was a that was like <laughs> triplets, really difficult triplets. And that it was like a really demanding baby. Anyway, that today this that lodge stands beautifully there at, at on the edge of the Ngorongoro crater in Tanzania. It's quite beautiful. So though that that's another it has a very special place in my heart. But at Angama, I must say, of all the people I've worked alongside, the team at Angama is the best I have ever worked with. And how lucky am I to be at my stage of my career and really work with a with a beautiful team that makes such a difference. Of course. Can you please tell us where you drew your inspiration for Angama's design and the layout in its location? The property sits right on the edge of the Rift Valley. And um, there's a, what are we in, in China? Fetal, fetal meters. Meters. You talk meters, don't you? Meters. Yes, meters. Meters. I speak so often to American audiences, I've got to always remind myself which, which, which audience I'm speaking to. We are 500 meters above the Mara Reserve, which lies at, at the feet, at the foot of this beautiful escarpment. So the views are extraordinary. They, they really, they take your breath away. In, Angama means in Swahili, hanging in midair or suspended in midair. And that's exactly what you feel like. You feel like you're somewhere between heaven and earth when you're there. So the views dictated everything. So most importantly, every guest tent had to have a view, the same view. Once you're dealing in the, in the market that I am, you can't have rooms that are different. Everyone has got to be as beautiful as, as the one next door. So views are important. Canvas was important because Kenya is the home of tented safaris. Ours is, mm -hmm. yeah, ours and our tents are, gosh, they're huge. They're 11 meters by six meters. They're about 100 square meters with a deck. So they're quite, quite substantial and with parquet floors and a, and a steel frame and, and beautiful interiors. But it is canvas. You know, you can hear the wind and you can hear the lions roar and you can hear the, the, the wind beating on the side of the wall. So you really do feel like you're in a tent. But it's a, I'm not going to use the L word, but I promise you I wouldn't do that. It was really a beautiful tent. So that was for the for guest tents, had to have lovely views. And when we design lodges, nothing comes between the bed and the view. So you'll never get sofas or tables or chairs or anything. You want to push the bed right up against as close as you can to the window. These tents have uh, floor-to-ceiling glass. 
right across the front. So that, and the other three sides are canvas, but the front is all glass. And at night, when you lie in bed and you wake up at two o'clock in the morning, the stars seem to fall at your feet because the, the sky is so clear and the stars wow. just, they just tumble. It's, it's quite beautiful. And when you wake up at six o'clock or half past six and you're having a, a lovely cappuccino or beautiful tea in bed, you watch the hot air balloons floating by at eye level. And then later on in the day, the raptors, the eagles, the vultures, um, they're all flying up at eye level as well. So views are everything. When it, when it came to the guest areas, we have two separate camps at the lodge. So it's 30 tents, but each 15 tents have their own completely separate guest areas. So you're never with more than 30 people at a time in, in, in the guest area. And we decided that our guests, I don't do much research, Joan. I just think what I would like, and then I do it. And there's a I hope like crazy that the guests like it too. We don't have a dining room or a sitting room or a bar. We have one big space, almost like a, I would say like a club club atmosphere. So there's no, you know, if you're just having dinner alone and other people are sitting drinking, you're all in one space together, which makes it nice and cozy. But the, that whole building is wrapped in glass all the way around. So it's a 22 meters across the front, all glass. And the architecture at the back is very, you'll see if you look at the website, you can see it's quite quite different than the, the architecture. So in the day, you have these wonderful views of the Mara, of the raptors flying by. And at night, you've got this wonderful, at the, behind the hope of the lodge, you've got these beautiful buildings that are floodlit, and you've got that to look at during the night, and of course the stars. So it's all quite dramatic, but and very high design, but quite simple, clean, uncluttered, and what you learn after many years of doing this, easy to look after. So you don't want to get too clever out in the middle of nowhere, because you've got to be able to make sure it looks beautiful all the time. Sounds amazing, really. Sounds like paradise. In 2019, you created a new experience, Angama Safari Camp. Can you tell us why you added this experience and what is it all about versus the lodge? You know, pop-up seems to be the the new new, every, the new black. Everybody's got a pop-up, a pop-up store, a pop-up restaurant. So we thought, well, let's let's have a pop-up camp. Um, <laughs> and it was quite fun actually because it carried us, you know, building this or creating. You can't. It's a mobile camp, so it moves. So you can't build it. You you craft it. And that kept us busy during lockdown, which was a fun project too. We didn't know this, obviously, before we, it, it, this was going to hit us before we started Angama Safari Camp. But what we needed is well, we needed more capacity over high season. It's the Mara, sadly, is very seasonal in perception. In reality, it's not seasonal at all, but there's a, there is a perception that all of the drama, the wildlife drama happens during the migration, which is July, August, September, October. And then when the when those great herds of wildebeest and zebra go back to, to the Serengeti in Tanzania, there's this, there's this thought that every tortoise, butterfly, and lizard follows along like the Pied Piper, and everything goes back to Tanzania. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. There is abundant wildlife all through the year in the Mara, 12 months of the year, extraordinary game viewing. So we are very, very busy in, in our high season, and we are pretty quiet in our mid-season, in our standard season. So you see, I don't use the word low season because there's never a low season in Tanzania, in, in, in Tanzania, <laughs> Kenya. And um, so we thought, well, let's have this little extra extra inventory for the for the high season. And also very much already starting were the sole-use safari properties. There are some beautiful sole-use safari villas in northern Kenya and in South Africa, I can, if you'd like to know, I can certainly share a few with you. And sole use was, it's lovely for families. This little, 
camp only has eight beds, so it's four tents, and it can go pretty much anywhere. We totally overspecced it. We thought, oh, we can do mobile camping. So we designed the tents and with the interiors and everything, and then we discovered it takes 16 people three days to put them up. <laughs> and 16 wow. people three days to take them. But the guests love them because they are so beautiful. You know, the same, the same, all the touches of, of the best of the best in those tents, but they do move. When we go, there's nothing left but maybe some flattened grass where the tents were. And um, there are suites, the, the, the loose flush, there's a double bucket shower. So there are two, you can have a shower together or you can have long, long shower bucket showers. It's gorgeous. So that it's like Angama's baby sister. So it's sole use, it's mobile. So it, you can literally put it up well, in those private sites in the Mara and you're all on your own. So it's a, it's a beautiful experience. And I must say, it's so wonderful. We're planning on doing a few more. And it doesn't matter that we've overspecked them because we like spoiling our guests. And that's what we do. Wonderful. What? You worked for one of the best safari lodge operators. You know all the hurdles and challenges of running a remote operation. You also know how much an experienced and renowned brand can elevate those hurdles. What enticed you to make Angama a family-run business, Nikki? That's a very good question, Joan. I've been talking to quite a few, you know, we've all been doing this during lockdown and during the pandemic. We do nothing but Zoom. So we've been Zooming around the world, <laughs> sharing ideas, sharing thoughts, possibilities, expansions, whatever. And what I have discovered, because you've got, and I've been hurtling through my career for the last 40 years, and sitting back and looking back, really, there is no international hotel flag, I'm talking international now, I'm not talking African, hotel flag that has successfully run a small safari lodge. The only one who is in the, the only flag that's in the business is the Four Seasons. They've got a, a lodge in the, Sering, in the Serengeti, but it is 75 rooms. So it's a little hotel in the bush rather than a, than a safari camp. Running a safari camp is a completely different, and marketing, by the way, and selling and everything, is a completely different beast to a hotel. With your hotel background, you'll know that your guests come in and, you know, they arrive, they check in and they go to their rooms. Their rooms are beautiful. Then they might have a lovely dinner in-house or they might go out for dinner in the morning. They wake up. It's wonderful, lovely breakfast, and they're gone for the day. Our guests are in our face 24 hours a day. Every time you turn around, there's another guest needing to be fed, <laughs> needing a story to be told, needing some company, because that's what the, our guests do. They come to us because it's it's all part of the experience. You can't just say to the guests, off you go. I mean, they'll get eaten by a lion if you do that. So you, the guests are with <laughs> us all the time. And that means a different way of managing the team, a different way of managing the day. And it's a completely different beast to, to hotels. And certainly on the branding side of it, you don't want to come across as a hotel. You want to come across as something charming and where you'll be safe. And by going it alone and branding it as an owner-run hotel, I think also coming on this long journey of branding, you know, there's a sort of the, the Muji anti-brand movement and, you know, take off all the, the branding. I think guests are loving something that is a little different. You know, if you're walking through down a shopping street somewhere, you suddenly see a shop you've, that doesn't, you've never seen before. You think, oh, I want to go inside and see what's there. It's not a Gap. It's not a Louis Vuitton. It's not a whatever. It's something different. And I think 
different, owner-run, high-touch owner-run, has enormous appeal. Our guests love it. And funnily enough, our travel partners love it too because when they want me to make a call or they want somebody at Angama to make a call on, you know, we have a six and up age limit for children in, in our high season. But if somebody wants to ask if we can bend that, and of course we bend it all the time, they don't have to go through layers and layers and layers. They send one WhatsApp to my daughter who looks after the travel trade globally and she gives an answer in three seconds flat. And they love that. They love the fact that the family are are at the front door, both sort of um, physically and emotionally and certainly through the travel trade. So I leave again on day after tomorrow, back to Kenya. I'll be there for two and a half weeks this time. So I'm still backwards and forwards every month from Johannesburg up to Kenya. And and the guests can feel it. I mean, the only, funny enough, and I should really be sharing this on a podcast, but the only two bad TripAdvisor reviews we've ever got about me because I never went to say hello to the guests. <laughs> they wanted to see you, I guess. And, you know, I do, I do have 60 guests and I, and I am working when I'm there. So, I, I, you know, and it's also a little kind of, hello, I'm Nikki, I'm the owner. How are you? You know, but anyway, guests feel, <laughs> guests feel that, that I'm part of the experience and I must come and talk to them. Yes, so, yeah, you're yeah. the host. I want to see. And heaven forbid I forget to say hello. So um it is it is a little it can be a little trying, but I do understand where they're coming from. And I did tell my staff the first uh, poor trip advisor review we get, I'm going to line them up and shoot them, because you know that's me. And um and of course it was me. And so they said to, they call me mama. They said, Mama, so now you're gonna shoot yourself because you're the one who got the first bad review. So we we had a lot uh-huh. of fun. We laugh about it a lot. Yes, there are definitely a lot of pros uh, being a family-run business, and it sounds lots of fun. Angama has collected numerous awards. It's consistently on the world's best list. And while accommodation, food, wine, design play a good part in that, it's not enough. I quote you, money, location, and good taste are a dime a dozen. Stealing guest hearts is another matter entirely. You even have a word for it, bendonat. I don't know if I uh, pronounce it uh, well. (laughs) Can you you tell us what goes into stealing hearts at Angama? Oh, I love the fact that you tried that word, Joan. It's an Afrikaans word and it's bedonat. And if you're you're bedonat about something, you are crazy to the edge of madness about something. So we are bedonet about our guests. For us, guests guests are everything. And what I have noticed, because I'll come back to what it goes to stealing hearts, but what I have noticed rather to my sadness and disappointment in my industry of high-end luxury safari lodges is that my colleagues in the industry are becoming so focused on conservation and if you go and you look at their branding and you look at their strap lines and you look at their stories, and it's all about rhinos, land, cheetah, lions, more land, rhinos, save this, save that. Oh, and by the way, we're a, we, we have a safari lodge. And it's almost for me that our guests are being used as a means to an end. And that is absolutely not allowed in, in, at Angama. We are a guest business. And how we get everybody aligned to steal hearts is if you ask anybody of, of my team, it's a small team by, certainly by Asian standards, it's 140, but we are in the middle of nowhere. And we all live in one village, which is also interesting, is that every single staff member knows their purpose in life is guest delight. That's it. It's simple. 
understand I have staff who don't, some who don't read and write, some who don't even speak English. So you've got to keep that messaging, that common purpose, that sh- that shared ambition. We've got no vision, mission, uh, strategy. No, it's, that's too sophisticated for where we operate. But having said that, we do charge tonight in our tents. We are charging $4,000 a night for a, for a tent for two guests. So you've got this this sort of gap between the staff who, who take care of our guests and the guests that are paying that amount of money. So how do we do it? We delight them. And how we delight them is that I completely unleash my staff to care for guests. There are no rules at Angama other than use your common sense. And if it, you're making a decision and it's in the best interest of the business, make it. Do not wait for me to tell you, oh, yes, we can't give that that couple a glass of a bottle of Moe because they've just got surprisingly engaged. It, just give it. And if you haven't got Moe, give them Dom Perignon. Just do it. And then we can discuss afterwards, you know, was that a good decision or a bad decision? But decisions are always celebrated. We run a, a very much a business by of forgiveness, not permission. And when you're dealing, because guests give you that this time and this gift of of this holiday, and it's got to be perfect. You've got to practice on guests. <laughs> you can't. It's the only time they're going to be there. It's got to be as perfect as it possibly can. And I don't mean perfect in, you know, serve from the right, take from the left, all that kind of, just perfect in, in the joy of being of service. So I unleash my get, my staff onto my, onto my guests, absolutely focused on making a profit. So I think, you know, running a good business, we are not owned by a, a rich benefactor like many lodges in, in, in Africa are. By the way, it's top of my wish list in my next life, Joan, is to be, is to work for a rich benefactor because then I don't have to worry about COVID. <laughs> Money just keeps coming in. But I think it keeps you on your toes again with your background in hotel keeping. It keeps you on your toes when you're doing something for profit. And it's, it's a good thing because, you know, you, you make the right decisions. And then by happy guests, we get, we make a profit. And from making a profit, we can give back. And the give back is really important where we operate, but it's not our raison d'etre. Our, reason for being there is to delight our guests and by doing that well we can build classrooms build wells build clinics look after the rhino conservation in the mara in the mara triangle we can do so many other things but it all comes from happy guests so that's how we do it we all know we wake up every morning and we know that our job is to get our guests to get us more guests it's so simple and that's you know yes. <laughs> that's why maybe I'm I'm known as that odd woman from Angama. Just keep it simple and keep it fun. That's another aspect I believe that we're losing a little bit of. You know, as we delve more into the word world of luxury and you know world of stuff, mm-hmm. fun. Guests want to have fun when they come on holiday. They want to go back and they want to spend the whole day on on the safari vehicle with their guide laughing. It's fun. It's not boot camp. Mm-hmm. It's fun, and I and everybody doesn't matter where they come from in the world. They want to have fun, and that's our our joy is to is to make our guests laugh. Yes, so I guess uh, striking a good balance for uh, conservation, but as well delighting guests, and I guess as well empowerment uh, to staff members is the best tool for them to delight the guests. Yes, they love it. They absolutely love it, and you know they. They love our guests so much. I'm going to share a story with you. Early in, early on, when our guests were, you know, it was probably two or three weeks after opening, we had a guest from New York, and she arrived. And the laundry, obviously, is included in the rate. I mean, at a rate like that, you would never. Oh, by the way, we never nickel and dime our guests. That's also an abhorrent practice of, uh, that I I can't bear. So laundry is 
there, she sent her beautiful designer jeans to the laundry. Now, our laundry is manned by men and women who come from our local communities. They have no clue what a designer jean should look like or looks like. And guess what? Her jeans were ripped jeans, and our laundry team downed them. They fixed them for her. <laughs> they thought they became a very special jeans. They thought nobody is looking after her. She's arrived here. Her jeans are torn. We'll fix them for her. She was so sweet about it, and that, she says she'll never she'll never change that. It'll always remind her of that wonderful gesture where the laundry staff took it upon themselves to don her three hundred dollar jeans that were beautifully ripped as they should be. And that's a, those are the stories from Africa. Those are the, the charming, delightful stories. Look, she could have been upset, but she wasn't. She she saw the love in it, and and, yeah, and I'm sure yeah. she's still dining out on that story to this day. Yeah, yes. and the pet yes. jeans is a, yes. a souvenir. <laughs> and, and can I say, not well darned. Big, thick, black cotton, not a work of art at all. But anyway, it's um, <laughs> it's one of my favorite stories. Well done. Um, Africa has something magical about it, especially when you get into the bush and observe animals, as I shared with you in the beginning of the conversation. Well-traveled guests, though, need a certain comfort you say that at Angama you deliver natural luxury. Can you expand on that? Absolutely. Every touch point for our guests must be of the best quality. Sheets, pillows, mattresses, crockery, cutlery, glassware, linen, towels, you name it, has to be the best because we are charging an enormous amount of money for, for estate Angama. But the, the focus our focus is not that for me that's just a given when you're running um, or operating a beautiful hospitality experience whether it be a cruise or a lodge or a hotel or whatever the the stuff and i'm going to call it the stuff has to be has to be lovely but the focus shouldn't be on that stuff the focus should be on on what happens when you're there i spoke about the uh, the luxury of lying in bed and watching the hot air balloons flows by. If you think about an artwork in a, in, a, in a great Asian hotel, you walk into the lobby and those artworks are incredible, whether it's mosaic ceiling or a huge painting behind the reception desk or, you, or beautiful chandelier, you, you know, you've seen it, you've worked with them, you know it. But how can you compare that to sitting on a vehicle and watching a leopard go about its daily business? That's, that's our art. And the leopard is doing something different all the time. Whereas, you know, when you walk into a lobby and you've seen the chandelier, you don't really notice it the second time. And certainly the third time you walk through the lobby, you're not looking at the chandelier. So that stuff is, it has to be there and it's got to be gorgeous. But it's the, when you walk up to the reception desk or however it's done, this, the fact that as you walk up, the person behind the desk stands and walks around to the front of the desk and greets you. That's luxury. Not standing behind the desk, coming to the front and greeting you as luxury. And knowing your name, remember, having done your, I'm sure you remember the daily briefings, how can we remember all the guest names that are coming in today? Because we've got to, <laughs> you know, and that's hard in a big hotel. In a small lodge like mine, it's much easier. But that, you know, good morning, Mrs. Fitzgerald. Did you sleep well? It wasn't a beautiful sunrise this morning. Just something that, that interpersonal connection, that's where I believe the luxury is, is, is sits. Well, certainly in our world in Africa. The, the experience between guide and guest butler and guest and I hear the laughter and I know I know it's working because 
that's the humanness that is happening, that, that connectivity between an African and Asian guest or an American guest, it's, and we learn from each other, and that's the beauty of, of, of what we do, and I believe that's the luxury. But the stuff has to be good. The food has to be good. The wine has to be the best. It's all got to be lovely, but you don't really need, in a, in a large my size, a sommelier mincing around because I'd rather have spend that money on training my guides to be better guides. But all my butlers are trained on the wines and they know, but if you, if a guest says to the wine, the butler, you know, where is this wine from? They'll say, please, can I check? They've got their cheat notes and they'll go back and they'll come back. So we give them the tools, <laughs> but I don't expect them to, to be wine fundies. Fundies, by the way, is a lovely Swahili word we use in East Africa for an expert. You can have, yeah. be a, you can be a plumber and you can be a fundy. You can be, uh, have a beautiful garden and you're gardening fundy. So fundy is a lovely word, but to be a wine fundy, my butlers don't drink wine. They've never left Kenya. They've, and honestly, there's only one winery in Kenya. The wine is undrinkable. So how can you expect them to have this conversation with my $4,000 a night guests about wine? But their sweetness and their charm and they tell their story about their families and where they come from, that's, what's, that's the luxury. Am I making any sense? Yes, totally. I fully understand and fully agree. Thank you very much for sharing, Nikki. You live between Angama, where you spend most of your time, and your home in Johannesburg. But over a year ago, the pandemic brought travel to a stop. Have you been confined in South Africa, or have you been able to visit, visit Angama in Kenya? promise you, Joan, no pandemic was going to keep me away from my, from my lodge. For the four months, March through mid-July, that's President Kenyatta, in Kenya, closed down Kenya, and, and my president closed down South Africa, I couldn't travel. So that was where we spent a lot of time with our, with our team at the lodge on Zoom. What we did at the lodge during that time was quite important, I believe, was we always had, we brought a team of 127 at the lodge. We had 40 staff members always at the lodge right the way through the pandemic. So they would work for six weeks and then go home because our staff work on a on a cycle where they stay at the lodge and then when it comes for them to go home, either they work three weeks on one week off or six weeks on two weeks off and they go back to wherever they come from all over Kenya. But we had 40 staff members that came in, they were COVID tested, everything was fine, so we made very sure they weren't bringing in COVID from, from their homes. And then they just kept the energy going in the building. You know what a hotel, if you mothball a hotel and you try and open it again, you mothball a lodge or you mothball a house or a a boat or anything it's so hard to get that that energy back into the bricks and mortar because it feels like it's been shut down unloved forgotten about so we had the chefs doing the sanding of the decks and the swimming lessons in the afternoon and golf championships on the foot oh, my staff don't play golf but what about golf clubs we did that on the on the soccer field <laughs> so it was fun everybody was doing sort of making the, you know, polishing, polishing, polishing the, the, the lodge, but also having lots of fun and keeping, I know it might sound crazy, but keeping the laughter in the in the walls so that when the guests mm. did come, it felt like nothing had changed. It had all been going as is right through. We didn't retrench anybody. We didn't, which was a dream for me. I had wonderful investor support to, to sustain the payroll. And our president allowed people to go out of this country on what were those flights called? Forget now. It was a a flight you could take a single flight to get out of somewhere. Well, I was on the first mm -hmm. flight, first flight to Kenya. I went on that flight. I could only buy a single ticket. I've got a work visa for Kenya, so 
I got on that flight at the end of August. It was a, a very strange experience. And then it's a repatriation flight. That's what it's called. And then after I worked there for two weeks, I got back and I repatriated back to South Africa. So that was the first time. And I've been eight times since. And I go again on Wednesday. So I'm up and down. I wiggle my way through. I would have jumped on the back of an ox cart and gone to Kenya if that was the only way to get in. Because <laughs> I had to be there to to be with my, my team when we reopened and to thank them for all that they had done d- during the lockdown. So we're a very tight family. So I'm nothing, nothing will keep me away. I live in Johannesburg, by the way, because my grandchildren are here. And um, one day I hope you will know that great joy of having grandchildren. You don't want to be too far from them. So uh, my grandchildren are here, but my business is there. And I commute up and down. It's easy. That's my commute. I see, I see. How has Angama been affected from a business standpoint and from a community standpoint? It's been tough as it has been for our whole industry, as it has been for the whole world. And I won't moan and groan about it because we're all in this and and I consider Angama being luckier than most because of, of shareholder support and not having to send my staff home without any money. That would have been unthinkable. Keeping the, the right the way through, keeping busy crafting Angama Safari Camp, that kept us going. Uh, we took a blow last year. We were 75% down on the top line. I mean, it was just... <laughs> and 2019, like most other people across the world, had been a whopper of a year. <laughs> and of course, you budget for 2020 and then boom. You actually, I had no clue we would close our lodge on the 16th of March. I could not, not have dreamed that would have happened. I've lived through 9-11. I've lived through apartheid South Africa. I've lived through terror attacks. You name it, we've lived through them all. But this? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we kept... And the most important thing is we kept telling stories. So we went hammer and tongs on social media and just kept that energy coming out all the time. We could tell the staff stories because they were there. And we had our yes. photographer. We've got an on-property photographer. So he was there photographing the animals so we could share with all our global community of guests and travel partners We could and, and travel writers. We could share stories about what the animals were up to. And then just really turn every penny twice and, and look after the business. And then when we opened, we opened and, and we've been trudging along gently. And I must say this, this high season, July, June, we, we did 70% of 2019 for June, which is not too bad. So we are luckier than most. And for that, I'm, I'm deeply grateful, but it does make you think when you're sitting at home and thinking, how can I run my business better when we get out of this? It does jolt you into making some, facing some real truths and how you should do things differently. So that's where I'm finding myself at at the moment. Yes, communication is very essential during this pandemic, and I'm happy to hear that your high season looks good, Nikki. Thank you. But I've got a lot of bills to pay. (laughs) I'm hoping hoping it's going to be. Do you remember what I said about that rich benefactor, Joan? In my next life, it'll be right at the top of my list. I want to be five foot three. I want to weigh... 20 pounds, and I want a rich benefactor. And that's that's me. I'm sorted. Then I'm completely sorted. I see. Good to hear about your list. <laughs> Back in 2015, in an interview, you were asked to give an advice to someone who's considering launching their own lodge project. Your response was, don't ever believe if I build it, they will come. Before you do anything, work out how you are going to find your guest and at what cost? That is the only hard part. Can you tell us how you did it? This is a 
brutal truth we face when you do something in the middle of Africa and it's it's unique. It's not opening a, a Ritz Carlton or a Mandarin in a big city. This is this is just something brand new. And how do you compete with all the beautiful luxury adventure travel experiences across the world? You've got them in Australia, you've got them in Latin America, in Costa Rica, you've got them in Alaska, beautiful destination for, for, for wilderness travel. How do you get your voice to be heard? You know, Joan, I've realized there's no one silver bullet. Firstly, one perfect guest experience at a time, every day, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. That's your best. You've got to get them in first, then that's where you've got to network through the travel trade. But once you've got that first guest in, you have to make sure they leave completely addicted to your brand because they're the ones who are going to tell the story or going to go back to the travel agent who sent them and said, it was wonderful. And that travel agent who's sitting in Ohio or in Shanghai or wherever gets the confidence, ah, it is a, it is a good place. So it's hard. Websites, gorgeous websites, until they're optimized, yeah, they're just gorgeous online brochures. They're, they're, they're not meaningful in, in, in getting you know on the search engine. So it's a long, slow slog. If you have the wherewithal, you engage with companies like yours, and across the world and you get them to tell your stories because travel media is a very strong it's a very strong tool to get good coverage to get guests in through the front but that all takes time our first guest at angama on the 23rd of june 2015 was a gentleman called nathan lump do you know do you know nathan joe he was a chief editor-in-chief of travel and leisure in new york at that time mm-hmm. and he was our first guest and he was coming to write a story. I've known him from, from my past life. And he was coming to write a story. But that was for the September issue. So, you know, you've already got a lag from June till September. So there's there's no quick time. Yeah. But certainly I would say media is very – we said so we can't – our small business can't afford to advertise. It's just hopeless. Take a page in Condé Nast Traveler. That costs $60,000. It is hopeless. Mm-hmm. So find – and then find a, a PR company that – completely understands your story. So, and, and there are many. I mean, I've been lucky to work with the same one in New York for 20 years now. He never, he will never ask me, Nikki, what's on your cheese board? Because he knows I'm just going to shout at him. Cheese board's irrelevant in our world. So find a, a PR agency who can do PR plus sales and marketing who completely understands your brand. And most importantly, Joan, understands the logistics of how to get the guests there. Because it's not arriving in Dubai and jumping in an Uber and going or taking an airport shuttle and, and a hotel shuttle and going to the hotel. No, there's a lot of pieces that have got to be put in place before the guests arrive. So important that whoever whoever you are talking to, they understand those logistics. And I think travel shows in used to be good. I'm not sure travel shows are going to be a thing in the future. Um, I, I don't know. I personally don't think so. So it's hard. And I think important in our end of the business, our, our tourism bureaus in our company, our tourism, you know, the, the national tourism bureaus, they don't understand top-end travel. Their job is to get the mass travel in because that's where the jobs are. That's where the investment is. So respectful of that. So you've just got to keep telling your own story. Two months before we started building, I said to Steve, oh, we get, I'm going to put out a weekly blog. <laughs> do you know? We still do six years later. Actually, put out a blog on a Tuesday and on a Friday, and we just 
tell the stories over and over again. And I think you, you don't know who's reading them. You don't know who's going to find them somewhere, but if you can hyperlink them to something else and, and work it that way, but just, as I said, just one guest at a time. Yes, media, PR, a partner in the uh, key uh, markets are definitely essential, as mm -hmm. you say, uh, one step at a time. Communication and uh, the blog, I've been reading that blog as well, so uh, very interesting. Yes, <laughs> it seems like I'm traveling again when reading your, your blog. Thank you. And looking back, is there anything you would have done differently? That's a good question. No. I'm too old to have regrets. No, I've, everything I would have, I would have done it exactly the same. I just I'm wish sure I when you made a, a decision <laughs> at that time, you would think this is the best decision uh, for the business. I'm yeah. sure. It is the end of a long journey, and I'm very proud of, of what, what we've achieved there. And you know, our guests tell us they tell us they they love us. So that's it's a good it's a good feeling. Being in our industry, Joan, every day you're just making people happy. Can you imagine being a dentist? I mean, I feel so sorry for dentists. But, you know, our job is just, <laughs> just to give guests the most wonderful time and just to see the joy on their faces and, and see them cry when they leave. I mean, that is, is there no bigger gift than that when our guests are sort of hanging on to their guys and saying, oh, Dad, I don't want to go back. I want to stay here forever. It's beautiful. I think it was a good decision that you came out of your retirement, Nikki. <laughs> Oh, Joan, I don't know. In 2018, you were interviewed by CGTN. You were saying that China visitors to Africa were growing steadily. The pandemic stopped that. North America and some part of Europe being the major feeder markets of African tourism. Do you feel a need to diversify towards the Asian markets and China in particular to accelerate the path to recovery? Absolutely. We run our lodge like a house party, and the diversity of our guests adds to that fun atmosphere that you get. When you get a, a Mexican families arriving, whoa, you can hear them from three kilometers off. They're already laughing and singing and shouting, and the boys are kicking footballs everywhere. So, that, and you know, you might get some stuffy county people from England kind of thinking, whoa, what is it? All adds to that diversity. And certainly with our Asian guests, we are. Are very well supported out of India. It seems to me that Indians, the top end travelers, love the wilderness. They love wilderness travel, and I know that from building lodges in India. There are visits to Kenya and, and Tanzania regularly. So that's already a, a wonderful, diverse mix. When it comes to our Chinese guests, the first thing I said to, to my team all right, we're going to put out food that can appeal to everybody because I've got in camp at any one time every nation on earth mm -hmm. is what it feels like all wanting to eat 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 what they're used to and i don't have any expat expat chefs at agama i only have uh, kenyan chefs many of whom have never even left our local county so if you can imagine but what i did realize with my chinese guests is that they really truly appreciate you cooking for them so we have done that so for our asian guests we have done it very simple look it's not fine cuisine chinese cuisine by any matter of means but it is it is food and that's the only and and i've also for indian guests indian guests are easier for me because there's such a big indian community in kenya so all the ingredients and and we all eat you know so it's all part of the old british empire you know we all eat indian foods it's it's easy but we have certainly focused on how we 
look after our Chinese guests at mealtimes. The only setback for anybody around the world, actually, Chinese, Mexican, whatever, if you don't have a grasp of English, then you're, you miss so much of what the guide is saying, the stories about the animals. I mean, you can mm-hmm. see it's the finer, finer details. So we find at our end of the market, we mostly attract Chinese guests, Asian guests who have lived in America and England and have got a really good grasp of, of English. And for them, it's an absolute joy. So we don't, we don't have people, none of our guests come in groups. Sometimes they come in, in a small group of maybe between eight and 10 guests with a, with a translator. But as you know, the saying goes, so much gets lost in translation. And, and, <laughs> And our business is about storytelling. But for us, I just love to walk into my lodge and see all these different nations under one roof and, and watching them then connect. So they're first connected with the staff, learned about their cultures, and then they're connecting with each other and learning about their cultures. It's it's fantastic. And by the way, you want to mitigate risk as well. So you never want to put all your eggs in, a, in an American basket or in an Asian basket or a European basket. I mean, Kenya's been on the red list for the UK for the last... I don't know. It's a disaster. So imagine if our business was all from from the UK, we would be out of business. So it makes good business sense to 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 spread that risk across your marketing efforts. Yes. So uh, diversification is uh, very important, and I'm sure as all your guests appreciate having a a good mix of different nationalities uh, in the lodge. Yes. <laughs> we are not yet out of the woods, or you may properly say, the bush for you, of the pandemic. But every challenge brings an opportunity. What is the most positive thing that this pandemic has brought to Angama and to a greater extent to the world of luxury travel? We spoke about Angama Safari Camp. So that would be, that was something we could really celebrate. You know, understanding first that our guests love to have some guests like to have a sole use experience. So we could talk that to, to, to those families or groups who really want just complete privacy and have their own little tent. So that was a, that was a joy that Angama Safari Camp through the, um, through the pandemic. I also built a room in the, in, at Angama called the Map Room. Um, it hasn't been launched yet. It's going to be photographed on Thursday and then we'll put the story out. And what that is for, for a traveler is I'm sure you agree. Everybody loves maps. It's just one of those mm-hmm. things. And now we don't even use maps anymore. We just use, you know, uh, Google and, you know, whatever. And away you go. There's some voice talking to you where you've got to go. Nobody's actually using maps. But I know that guests, especially when they're traveling in Africa, they like to know where they are. Where am I? <laughs> where yes. am I? And there's this it's lovely. Part of traveling. Yeah. And there's this lovely trend happening in lodges, in, in, in the luxury lodges, where they're building, the lodge owners are building discovery rooms or curiosity rooms or nature rooms, like little mini museums, some beautiful. And again, after this, I can tell you which, which websites to look to go and look at for those. Probably the loveliest one is at the Serengeti Four Seasons in, in Tanzania. They've got a discovery room. Anyway, I looked around and I thought, okay, now if I don't have that rich benefactor, well, how can I, how can I compete with this? And I know that people love maps. So I built a map room, which is a big, handsome room. I mean, it's a you know, where people can have private dinners, but you go in there and it's lined with maps and stories and and just fascinating stuff, and that's all you know for our guests. It's it's 
an extension of their of, of, of their experience of coming to to Angama to to see the animals and to be in Africa. And then, I mean, the earliest map of Africa I've got in that room, it's from the Royal Geographic Society in London, so it is not an original by any means. But it dates, it's a, a map of Africa that dates to 1608. And, you know, you oh, can just wow. get lost in that. You look at you think, how did those early explorers, because the cartographers were not going out on the ships. They just got the information back from the explorers and sat in London and drew these maps from, from what they heard from the, from, from the explorers. And so there's this room filled with modern maps and ancient maps and maps of the Great Rift Valley. And uh, there's one map that shows uh, humankind, uh, you know, how we got up on two feet five million years ago, I think it was in Tanzania at Olduvai Gorge and we stopped being on four feet and we got up bipedal and off we went and we went on safari across the Serengeti because it was so beautiful. And so all these stories are held in this map room and that, I believe, adds to the luxury, well, Nikki's luxury of the, of the guest experience. So that for me and also importantly, adventure travellers, luxury adventure travellers generally, because don't forget we are in the world of adventure travel. That's what we do. People are, it's mm-hmm. quite, it's quite something you must remember from Pinder when you were sitting in the safari vehicle and a lion walked up and walked past the car. You probably thought, he's going to eat me. He's absolutely going to eat me. Well, he loved me. <laughs> and so we we also realized that we need to up our storytelling and not rely just on the travel channels to tell that story, but to own our own voice. And that was an important important focus that, that, that COVID brought us was own your voice. Don't outsource your voice to anybody. Own it. Even if you're telling the stories through a, a PR agency or, tra- or a travel agents, give them the authentic stories that they can make you stand out above the rest. Yes, looking forward to hearing and seeing more about the map room. And uh, yes, my personal uh, travel experience at Pinda was a great experience. Thank you for highlighting that. And uh, tell us a bit more about the poster at the back of you. Joan, I'm sitting talking to you with a poster of Out of Africa behind me. Yeah. Of, of that beloved film that we've all, especially people of my generation, but I'm happy to hear that people of all generations have watched, always with a big box of Kleenex because we know how that, that movie ends. When the talent, uh, not talent scouts, the location scouts came to Kenya, I think it must be 35, 36 years ago, to film, you know, to find locations to film um, Karen Blixen's famous memoir, Out of Africa, which has the opening line, as you remember, called I Had a Farm in Africa at the Foot of the Ngong Hills. That is one of the great opening lines of any any memoir. And they looked and they went to Ngong to look at those hills. And unfortunately, by then, Nairobi had already spread all the way to the foot of the Ngong Hills. It was just urban sprawl. So there was no way they could use the, the, the Ngong Hills for the for the uh, location, for the Ngong Hill scenes. And so they found three little hills on the edge of the Maasai Mara, and those three little hills are where we have built our lodge. And the, the, the hill on the poster, you all close your eyes, Sure, listen to close as you know, they've got Meryl Streep and Robert Redford sitting with a little hill behind them and, and the Mara spreading out below. Well, that third little hill, we've got our camp on the two hills, and then the third one we call the Out of Africa Kopi, which I'm sure you remember from you know what a Kopi is. It's a small hill in early Dutch, spelled K-O-P-J-E, Kopja, Kopja. And um Kopja. 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 there we go. And in Afrikaans we say Kopi. 
And that is where our guests go for an out-of-Africa picnic. They can sit in the very same spot if they want to have a little moment of out-of-Africa. And that is there where Karen Blixen, uh, where Meryl Streep, does the, uh, uh, delivers the eulogy for Finch Hatton. That lovely moth tree is um, just outside our safari shop. So when you walk, if people don't know it, if guests don't know it, they walk around, they kind of say, I feel like I've been here before, but I can't quite make up. I can't remember. <laughs> feel I've been here before, because we don't have it scattered and splattered everywhere. You know, we tell the story to those guests who are interested and those who are not, we don't. You know, we don't have a cutout of Robert Redford that you can kind of sit next to. But it is, uh, it's fun. And there are lots of little touch points through the lodge on the Out of Africa story. Every tent obviously has Karen Blixen's great, great memoir. And we celebrate, we celebrate that little part of history. And some of our guests come just for that. They love it. And of course, they love then they watch the movie and then they cry again. And um, <laughs> Yeah, so talking about storytelling, that's a beautiful story. So out of Africa. Angama just celebrated its six-year anniversary. You shared in one of your stories on your website that the past six years have tested you on every level, but you rose to face the challenges. Can you share with us the most important milestones of the last six years? Well, as any independent hotelier will know, the first challenge you face is cash flow. So that was interesting. But again, you find a way around it and um, you do that. And it also, if you start a business that's under being stressed for lack of cash, and there's a long story, we were meant to get our development, developmental VAT back from the government and they reneged on that. So we found ourselves in a, in a $1.6 million cash flow hole which happens in Africa. You've got to just roll with the punches. But it, it, what we used that, Steve used that, my husband, the staff were fully aware of what was going on. And because of that, you build such a team of, of, of loyalty and we're going to get through this. And, and every time we couldn't make the payroll on the, on the right date, Steve would stand up in front of the staff and say, I'm paying you late this month by three or four days and I'm so very sorry. And, and that has built this wonderful this team at Angama of, through that hardship. Another hardship, obviously, was is losing my beloved husband. He died nearly four years ago. He, so he enjoyed two years of, of, of Angama, and then he succumbed to heart disease, and I had to very unwillingly step into his shoes. But that was a few lessons learned. There were big shoes. There were uncomfortable shoes because, of course, I was always the bad cop, and he was always the adored one. So I had to... <laughs> shared my bad cop image and, and reinvent myself as the adored one. But then I knew somebody had to be the bad cop, so I had to find somebody to, to fill those shoes. Because, you know, it's all in business. You've always got to have somebody who's nagging. And our business, as you know, Joan, is all about detail, 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 all day long. And you can't blink, because if you blink, you miss the detail and you've, you've missed that opportunity to delight your guests. COVID, it's like spoke- parenting, parenting, <laughs> bad cop, good cop. <laughs> exactly. Uh, another challenge is COVID, but that we've spoken about. I think another challenge I'm facing, uh, again, uh, we briefly touched on it, is keeping pace with how top-end adventure travelers buy travel, because that's reinventing itself every day. Mm-hmm. I don't believe the traditional channels mostly to Africa, I don't know how it works the rest of the world, are keeping pace with how the modern traveler wants to buy travel research and buy travel. So that's been a that's been a challenge. My biggest supplier three years ago today doesn't give me one single guest. 
because they couldn't keep pace with how the world has changed. So, of course, I had to see this coming and then make sure that I could that I could put something in place to ensure that those revenues kept kept coming from other sources. So that's all that's all been a bit of a challenge. And I think a challenge for us. I spoke about the seasonality of, of, of tourism to Kenya. We want to profile the Mara as a 12-month destination. So we uh, we thought we can't just sit there and, and moan about, oh, but it's seasonal, because that's what the travel agents do. So we say, well, look at the rates you've got in, in the off-season. They're fantastic rates. The animals are, oh, but we can only sell in the high season. So, okay, fine. Well, then we've got to do it ourselves. And we started I think we're in our fourth year now, um, a photographic competition called the Greatest Maasai Mara Photographer of the Year. And we have that initiative showcases the diversity of the of the Mara right through the year. Beautiful images. Oh my goodness. If you go onto the website, you'll see. And it's it's done by the Art Foundation, the Angama Foundation, but it's a it's a Mara wide initiative. And what the photographers do, they take a great picture, the guides, we train all the guides around the Mara, there must be over a thousand of them about the competition. They photographers take the, the photograph, and of course the guys, no matter where they're from in the Mara, see this wonderful they say, Oh, you must enter it into the into this competition. And it costs $20 to enter one one image. And you can nominate one of six NGOs working in the Mara. So the money goes straight to the boots on the ground, operators, mm-hmm. uh, elephants, predators, community, whatever. And they can choose which, which of these NGOs they want to support. The $20 goes straight through. We have monthly. Now we've got, we've got so many beautiful pictures. We've got five monthly winners meaning great and then once a year we choose one winner it's ten thousand dollar prize first prize from the angama foundation and five night state angama and things like that so we're using what how we can as one small lodge to tell the story through the year of the diversity and the abundance of, of wildlife so those challenges we thought we can't just let it be we just got to re we've got to change that that memory muscle of everybody that the Mara is beautiful all through the year. And often outside of the migration, it's more beautiful because it's quieter. The, you don't have six million wildebeest moving in your ear. And they can be quite tiresome. And you, when they've gone back to, to, to Tanzania, you, the elephants feel much more relaxed. And the whole thing, you can breathe again. You feel that you've got space, you can breathe. And certainly it's quieter from a, from a vehicle impact. And the rates are better. So And the weather's divine. So it's all it's all going for you. So we... We rose to that challenge of seasonality and slowly but surely, but it takes time. And I think one thing we realized in Africa, there's no quick fix. You just take time. So we're we're rebranding the Mara as a 12-month destination, one image at a time. I hope I live long enough, Joan, to see all these things. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> you have been recognized by your peers for contribution to the industry as a judge in various capacities. International Relay and Chateau Woman of the Year, and most recently as a board member for the Adventure Travel Conservation Fund. Can you tell us more about the Adventure Travel Conservation Fund and what your hope to achieve there? Thank you, Joe. I'm very proud of the work that the Adventure Travel Conservation Fund does. It's funded mostly through the travel trade, and we raise the money through through our through our members who who people who who are members of the fund, and then we grant we have about six or seven grants each year. You know, we all 
go out to, to similar people and say, okay, are, are there any great initiatives in your part of the world? In Borneo, it might be an orangutan. In the parts of uh, outside of Calcutta, in those kind of swampy areas, it could be tiger conservation, which is very hard compared to in, in, in the heartland of India. It could be parrots in, in Peru. It could, it could be anything. All communities. And we raise money and we, through the grant, grant funding, we, we, we give it back to these various initiatives that are supporting adventure travel. Because without beautiful places, with beautiful creatures and, and communities that can feel the benefit of these businesses that run there, it won't sustain. And why I'm proud of it as being an African is because we it's what we do every day and have done for the last 30 years. It's not new for us. And we can share, I can share through the, the board and, and through the team that grant, uh, do the, the funding, the grant funding, I can share African experiences and lessons I've learned in funding projects in Africa. So it's really, it's a global village if you want. And Africa is quite ahead in that. And it's exciting to be able to say, well, we tried that and it didn't work. Don't send books until you've built a library. Don't build a library until you found a librarian. <laughs> because books are useless if there's no building and there's no librarian. So we've tried, we've made all these mistakes in Africa. So, you know, rather build it, first find the librarian, bring them on the teaching staff, then build a little library and then get the books. But don't get the books from a Canadian round, round table or rotary because the children are not reading. The, the children in Maasai land are not reading about Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> so, so try and get the Terrians in Canada to buy books or get books that are appropriate for children in Maasai land. So all that becomes a sharing exercise. And it's it's nice to give for me to give back outside of Africa. And this is what makes me so proud of working for that initiative. As you said, the strategy should be use your common sense. <laughs> and then you'll make it through. Yes. But you do know, Joan, there is a saying, the sad thing about common sense is that it's not so common. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Thank you for sharing. You are recognized as a maverick in the industry in the most positive way. You and your husband, Steve, have marked this industry with your achievements and innovations, while the animals will always be the center of the experience. What will be the next big innovations in the Safari Lodges experiences? Well, thank you for being kind about being a maverick. I'm actually often known as a grumpy old dragon, but I'll settle for maverick. I think the, the big innovations, again, we've touched on, on them, is how guests research and, and buy travel and how we share storytelling through whatever avenue that we've got. Absolutely critical storytelling is becoming, I think it's the next big thing. I remember once sort of 30 years ago, oh, we have a spa. It was like, a spa? That's amazing. Well, now it's like, you know, <laughs> a spa's, you just have to have a spa. So you're right. We've been through all the iterations of what's the next, the next luxury. I think storytelling is a luxury and sharing that of those stories. I think I'd like to see high owner touch a higher and a touch across the board. By the way, in properties across the world, I think guests are loving this connection they can make with the person behind. I mean, it's old-fashioned innkeeping. Do you remember? We're innkeepers. We stood at the front door. We said, good morning and welcome. Mm. I, I think we are, we've, we've lost that. And if it can't be the owner, because I'm sure all the great hotels in, in Shanghai are owned by whoever, but somebody must be there. Even if they're not the owner, they've got to act like the owner and, and mm. be a 
be on, on, on top of every every detail all the time. And yeah, I think those are really so how guest research, high owner touch, oh, flexibility. In my world of, of safaris, flexibility. Don't prescribe to your guests what they've got to do every day. Make sure that you find out where they've been, what they've seen, what their dreams are, and craft each experience around that and not what suits you but what works best for the guest when I've always say you know for me a great chef is a chef who's actually watching the guest eat his food his or her food and watching with anxiety that when the food goes in the mouth there's a look of joy across their faces not at the past where the food is perfect and it's given to the, the waiter or the butler and said off you go and I it's perfect for me well, something's missing here the chef is not cooking for himself, he's cooking for the guests. And I believe really great chefs cook for their guests and not for what the plate looks like. That's why I'm a maverick, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so storytelling, high owner touch and flexibility. Yeah, that would be, I think that would be. And those little touches like map rooms and discovery rooms. We have a vegetable garden at Angama. Not everybody, you can't have a vegetable garden in the center of Beijing, but you could have one on the roof, perhaps, I don't know. But we have a vegetable garden, a one-acre vegetable garden, and that's designed for guests. It's not rows and rows and rows and rows of, of fresh produce. It's done in a in a design of snakes and ladders, and you can meander and get lost and storytelling along the way, and then you pick your own food, off, of course. Don't you love it? We charge our poor guests so much money, then we make them pick their own food for lunch. You pick your own food. <laughs> get content. <laughs> and then you sit there and, and then there's a lovely porcelain basin and, and all the, the salads are washed and you make your own salad and there's a lovely cheese board and some sourdough bread and, and lovely glass of rosé. And that's a luxury. It's not fin cuisine. Da, 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 da. It's just your own picked salad and a piece of bread and cheese and a glass of wine. It's beautiful. So I think those are the kind of little luxuries. So look for those opportunities in, in when you're booking a property, a hotel, anywhere, a cruise. What what is there along those lines that is not just by rote? What will be they be doing just for me? Yes, yeah. it's actually all so simple, isn't it? It's so simple. Okay. <laughs> you have kept very busy in 2020. You have launched out of an African kitchen on Gamma's cooking book. What was the inspiration behind the book? And please tell us its content. Well, I hope Karen Blixen is going to forgive me for stealing her name of her beautiful memoir to put it onto our cookery book. Our guests ask for recipes all the time, which is great. Recipes are for sharing, absolutely. And we have them and, and we can email them to them. They're all branded, beautifully done. So they're, they're all there. So when the guest is in camp and says, I need the recipe, boom, it's, it's printed straight away or, or emailed to the guest. And we no longer in our industry. I don't. I can't remember when I've last seen one, Joan. When did you last see a hotel brochure? A no. hotel brochure. Yes, yeah. that's uh, rare now. And do you remember doing sales calls in the olden days? Lugging. Of course, I, I had a whole bag of brochures. <laughs> exactly. Yes, fact sheets. Fact sheets, huh? brochures. And where where did they go? They just went into some pile in the travel agency and and got and got lost. And they cost a small fortune to to produce beautiful yeah, brochures. So we don't have anything at the lodge tactile for the guests to take home. Yes, we've got our blog, we've got our stories, we've got our website, we've got the greatest mass summer photography competition. We've got all this visual, you know, online visual material content. But what what is what is there for them to take home that is useful and tells our story? So our cookery book 
is actually a collection of, have you, did you manage to get a copy? Have you got a copy or, or not? No, not a copy, unfortunately. Yes. I'll send you a copy. Well, when you read it, you'll see it's full of stories. There are only 70 uh-huh. odd recipes in there, but there's the recipe, you know, of our Kenyan staff drink a lot of chai and it's made uh, with boiled unpasteurized milk. And the story there, there's a little story about that of the mama who's milking her cow and how she comes to the lodge every day with five liters of milk. And, and, and then there's a recipe for Kenyan chai. Now, nobody's going to make Kenyan chai, but it all, it, it mm. feels, feel, it feels real. So, one was to delight our guests and give them something because they keep asking for recipe books, uh, for recipes. Two was to, to share our stories and be the, the brochure if you want, but, but a cookbook. And three, and most importantly, it was a love letter to my, my chefs. And when you see the book, you'll see it. It's, it's just the chefs tell stories on every page. So it was a way for me to say thank you to them for all they've done for the last six years. I, I do all the training on the food. It's, it's something that I, I still do as CEO. I need to be passing that on to somebody quite soon. We work off a, all a la carte, okay, not, so no buffets. Anyway, you're not at buffets in COVID anyway, but we've never had buffets at, at, at Hangama. And we work off about 560 recipes, and those are all trained. And I think you'll find this amusing. The 560 recipes, which our staff are allowed to cook up, chefs allowed to cook for our guests, are in a folder called Nikki Says. Because if, if Nikki doesn't say you can do it, then you can't do it. Because our chefs don't, <laughs> our chefs don't, they don't have the, the expertise or the experience or the curiosity of most chefs because they know cooking shows in Kenya, they know cookery books, they know cookery magazines. So they just cook what, what, what I teach them to cook. So, and they've done the most remarkable job. So this was a, a little thank you to me from me to them to say thank you. And they can show it to their children. And again, all a second copy, I said, put it away in a box, in, a, in an envelope. And one day when you go, but please don't go, but if you do go for another job, you can open this book and say, I can cook everything in here. I mean, that is such a powerful message when you are competing with, gosh, when you put a, a job a post out in, in, in Kenya, you get three, 400 applicants. So this was just another little, little something for them to, to show prospective employers what they can do. So that's all. That's yeah, all. A very lovely initiative. My last formal question. Once you have managed to steal the hearts of your guests, what is it that you want them to take away from their stay at Angama? Well, I, I can't tell them what I want them to take away, but they tell me what they have taken away. And they tell it to me in spade loads on that wonderful platform called TripAdvisor, <laughs> <laughs> which, by the way, has kept us very, very honest. I'm a mm-hmm. great believer in, in, in TripAdvisor. You know, it's if you if you messed up, take the consequence. If you haven't greeted a guest, take it on the chin that you haven't greeted the guest. <laughs> but it's so interesting, Joan, on TripAdvisor, you would expect the guests mostly to wax eloquent about the views, about the animals, about the food, about the architecture, about the shamba, about the whatever. But actually, over and over again, they tell me how they fell in love with the stuff. And that's what they've taken away with them. They've taken away that, that connection of making, having made a, a new connection somewhere. I won't call it a friend because our staff don't become friends of our guests. But they just feel that that love, and that for them is the greatest gift that they've been given at Angama. And I know I'm 
bang on about it. But it is, it's, it's telling the story. You can sit and look at a leopard and the guests can point at the tree and say, leopard. Okay, it's beautiful, the leopard. You can look at it, you can take photographs of it, but imagine if the guide tells you the story of that leopard. And when I was a little boy, I was tending the goats and sheep because they do. They, they tend, the Maasai tend goats and sheep from the age of four. How they don't all get eaten by wild animals, I don't know, because we have no fences in Kenya. It's all an open system. Mm-hmm. And I was tending the sheep one day, and I was sleeping under it. It was the middle of the day, and I was sleeping under a tree, and I was woke up, and I saw a leopard. Uh, and they tell the story, and it's real, because it's, it's, it's real in what happens. And that's what, there's that connection that is made. So the guests remember the leopard that they saw, but they remember the story that came with that leopard. And that's that's the gift of, of humanity, I think. That's, so that's what they tell me they love most about, about the lodge. They remember the leopard, the story, and as well the person that told them. Absolutely. Before ending our conversation, I would like to ask you a few more personal questions. You can answer quickly or you can elaborate as much as you like, Nikki. What is your favorite spot at Angama? Mm, That's a good question. My favorite spot. One favorite spot. One favorite spot at Angama. I think I'm going to have to be really honest and tell you, lying on my bed, looking out. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a wonderful spot. It's such a treat just to lie there and have this this panorama happening in front of you. It's it's so special. There are so many special spots, but oh, and there is another one. There is a huge fig tree in the middle of the Mara, in the middle of nowhere, gigantic. It, it would probably take four people um, holding hands to to circumvent the the trunk of the tree, this fig tree, and it's been named Steve's tree after by our guides. And I do love going there and sitting there. It was his favorite tree when he went out on oh. safari. So having a picnic under Steve's tree is, is also a very special place. Great. So your bed and Steve's tree. Mm-hmm. What is the one travel experience you will never forget? Not in Angama. And why? That's easy. Three years ago, yeah, four years ago now actually, I went with a group of friends. I couldn't go with Steve. He wasn't strong enough to travel. I went with a group of friends to Alaska. Mm-hmm. And we've all heard about Alaska and the cruises and the bears and, and all of that. But this particular friend of mine is a is a wonderful travel planner. She decides where we're going, and then we all just pay our money and we appear in Anchorage on the due date. It's it's so and we just follow her. She's fabulous. This particular experience, and I would love you one day to research it or to talk about it, you fly from Anchorage and you fly northeast. So you're flying away from the coast, you're flying back towards Canada. You fly to a little town called McCarthy. In McCarthy, you get off that place, it's a charter. Everything is eye-wateringly expensive, but that doesn't matter. You get off the charter and the owner of the lodge, Paul Klaus, of this lodge called Ultima Thule, is there and you get onto his plane and the first thing he does he takes off and he flies you straight into a 10,000-foot glacier and you think you're going to die wow. because the Alaskan bush pilots are legendary. So, you know, this is like incredible and he is a, he's crazy. Anyway, and you fly to his lodge and what is so beautiful about Ultima Thule, the closest road to the lodge is 150 miles away. Mm, wow. You can, only, you can only get in and out by airplane. And the very short season, end of May through early September, because obviously Alaska's Alaskans, 
things happen there. And every day your adventure is in a super, super cub. A super cub is a little airplane where you sit behind the pilot. It's, and it feels like it's made of canvas. I don't know what it's made of. But, and they start the propellers by hand. I mean, it's, you think Africa's scary. <laughs> Alaska. And you get in, you've got your pilot in front of you. So if they're four, they're, how many rooms they've got? They've got six rooms and they've got six planes, six pilots. And you sit behind the pilot and your partner sits behind you. So you're in a row of three because the plane is just this wide. And you take off and you fly in those mountains and they're all 6,000 meters. 5,000 meters, I don't know, they're the highest mountains ever. And none of them got names because there's just so many of them. And you fly around in these wonderful places. You land anywhere, on a riverbed, on a glacier. You, you zoom down and you wave at the bears and they stand up on their on their back, back feet and they kind of, I think they're saying rather rude things to the planes as they come over. It is the middle of nowhere. And what I felt, Joan, is first I felt so small and I also realized that for the first time, this is how my guests feel when they come to Africa and a lion walks next to them on the car. You know, for us, a lion's a lion, okay, yeah? We were half tempted to lean out and pat it. But that feeling of being so vulnerable and 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 right out of your comfort zone, uh, it was by far the best trip I've ever done, and I would go back in a heartbeat. So if you've got any listeners who who want the luxury of Alaska and do doing sightseeing by airplane, there's nothing to touch it. It's incredible. Wow, sounds like a very unique experience. What would you like to be remembered for, Nikki? Okay, that's also easy because, you know, as you start looking at your your sell-by date, you start thinking about what you've done with your life. And I would like to be remembered for I – did, I, did, I did the sums the other day – I've created with a team, with my husband and with others, but I've created 4,500 new jobs across Africa and India. And I'm proud of that. because And they're all jobs in the middle of nowhere. And each person on, on our payroll, wherever we've worked, supports, we know that from research, supports between 10 and 15 people in their family and, and in, their, in their community. So that feels good in an age where people are making money just by spinning money backwards and forwards is to actually get out there and obviously build something beautiful for guests, but to create jobs because it's honestly the most precious, precious thing a rural African can dream of is, is a job. And I'm proud of that. Yes. Jobs mean well-being for the locals, education, you know, a future. So it's, yeah, very big accomplishment. You should be very proud of that. And when you said Relay Shutter, Relay and Shutter Woman of the Year, I kind of, I wince a little bit because <laughs> it, it's it's so not me, as you've realized. But um, I'm obviously, some, <laughs> somebody was impressed. But that for me is, it's great. And sit on boards and things like that. But this To see somebody start with you, they don't speak English, they don't read and write, and within three years they're speaking English and they work in Excel spreadsheets. You go, yes, I did it. I did it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yes, beautiful. beautiful. Thank you for sharing, Nikki. It was a true pleasure speaking with you today, and thank you for being one of our luxury voices. Thank you so much, Joan, and thank you for, for telling travel stories, because right now when We can't really travel, and we're dreaming and planning 
your podcast, I'm sure, are bringing so much joy to so many people. So thank you. I'm greatly honored to be here. And I look forward to welcoming you back to Africa soon. I hope so, too. I'm very much looking forward to my next visit and meeting you in person, Nikki. Me too. I'll be standing there with arms open wide to welcome you. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Luxury Voices. If you have enjoyed it and found this episode useful, please share it with your network, like it, rate it, and help us spread our voices. You can find information about today's voice and the podcast content in the podcast notes. Luxury Voices is a podcast created by Infinite Luxury Group, a luxury sales, marketing, communication specialist based in Asia. Please tune in for the next episode. Bye for now.